You'd better change your ways You tell me that you love my kissing Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz baritone E.J. Decker. He spoke with Neon Jazz off-Broadway in New York City about his 2018 CD, Bluer Than Velvet. He delved into his childhood. His mother was a pianist and his dad was a big band era baritone who worked with many New York area bands of the day. Over the years, E.J. has gone from jazz through pop and standards, rock and folk, to 1950s R&B and the blues. He's covered it all. He's one of today's strongest male interpreters of ballads and baritone voice. He's been all over and has very cool tales to tell. So please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. EJ, thank you for taking a minute out to speak with Neon Jazz. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Happy to be here. So let's dive into the new album here. I've had time to wrap my ears around it. I really dig it that baritone's just blazing through, and I want to know about Bluers and Velvet. I love it. I, one of the really amazing engineers that I had working on this thing, both in the, the tracking uh, phase and also in the, in the mix and the mastering, Michael Borby and, and Paul Wycliffe, they'll tell you that I kept pushing because I wanted to make sure that walking into the marketplace, I could plant my flag and say, dig this, you know, with no reservations. And... You know, it wasn't right until it was right, and it's right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with it. It's, uh, it's What you hear is what I was hearing, and it, it was important to me that uh, I'd be able to capture that. I think we did. So what does each successive album mean to you? Is it a imprint of where you're at in your life, or are you trying to evolve <laughs> to the next level? What are you trying to do? Every album is a snapshot of, well, two things where I am at that moment, what I'm responding to in the world around me at that particular moment. So that's, at one point, that's where I am um, musically. Uh, and, and the other one is, is what's going on in the world. I mean, the first one, the first album I put out, While the City Sleeps, in 2000, that was about the nightlife, all the vagaries of, of if, if you're uh, a night habitué, if you hang out in clubs, if you see shows, if you're a musician, if you're an artist, and, and you enjoy something other than the strict nine to five and, and uh, quick to bed and early rise, there's there's a whole life cycle there that that uh, feeds you. Um, and that album was about that. The second album in uh, thirteen fourteen uh, was a job of work, Tales of the Great Recession, about just that the impact that the recession from 08 had on all of our lives. Um, that's what was happening around us. And and this one was, wanted to take a, a time out to, to pay tribute to somebody who had a huge influence on what I do and who I've become as a musician. So, so they've all got an idea behind them. And, and, and you know, in the, in the other, uh, at one point I had like 12 fully realized albums floating around in my head that I'm trying to get to land and trying to get out but uh, I think we're in three of the 12 now. So uh, the other ones all have an idea and a concept, too. I just need to get, be able to get to them. But, uh, and, they'll, and they'll be changed and impacted by what's going on in the world around me. So where did you grow up? New Jersey. Talk to me about your childhood and how you got so into jazz. Ooh, mostly through my dad. My dad was a big band singer. If you know the, uh, the old baseball jargon term, uh, a cup of coffee, he had a cup of coffee with the Tommy Dorsey band in 39. <laughs> and um, 
after Jack Leonard had quit, before Sinatra came in, there was a gap in the holidays in 39. And uh, my dad's best friend was a real hustler, became a big talent agent out in L.A. later. They went to see Dorsey, and he didn't have a singer because Jack Leonard had quit. My dad's friend went backstage and, and talked to Dorsey into bringing my, my dad up. And, and he sang with him for, for a couple of months, covering those uh, holiday gigs that uh, Dorsey had lined up. But then, uh, just when my dad thought he could have his big break, Dorsey was finally able to get uh, Sinatra away from Harry James, and that was the end of that story. So because of that, I always had big band stuff around the house all the time, and just the stuff that my dad was naturally listening to. Glenn Miller and Carmen Lombardo and all these obscure uh, big bands that I was listening to all that. And I've got two older brothers, and with like four-year gaps on, and between each set, and they all had record collections. So from the time I was about five, I was stealing everybody's records and going down to the basement and just playing along and just wailing along with them. And so I had all kinds of influences from, from doo-wop to jazz to big band. Uh, so my oldest brother got into uh, jazz in the 60s. Uh, I'm listening to, uh, you know, Miles and Coltrane, and, and he dragged me along to a, a, a Monk concert. So I saw Monk when I was like 14. And because uh, Jimmy Smith was playing. Jimmy Smith was kind of my on-ramp. Because Jimmy Smith, just in that period, had a kind of a rock R&B phase on, on some of his verb stuff. And, and that, that I started digging. That, that was a quick little segue over from the rock and roll that I was listening to. And uh, so I went to that concert because Jimmy Smith was also hot. And I'm also I'm listening to Monk and going, I had no idea what he was doing. But something in my head said, listen to this because you're going to need it later. <laughs> Very cool. And... Uh, and it was very cool. And I just went, wow. And then I went back off and I you know, went back to my rock and, and folk and, and I was in those circuits for a long time. And then as I got older, uh, I was out in California for a long time and came back home to the East and just started sliding more into jazz. And as I got older, I started just kind of drifting. We all turned back into our parents when we got older. Um, and jazz started coming back. And there, there was a big jazz scene here in the city uh, in the 90s. And I just started hanging out, listening to people. And I just started singing it, you know, and uh, listening to everybody. And I've been doing it ever since. You do go through jazz, pop, rock, folk, you know, R&B and blues. Mm-hmm. How does all of this fit together for you as a whole? I know, I know you came back to jazz, but how do all of these different genres fit in your repertoire as a musician and a singer? I dig everything. So I'm going to play you everything. <laughs> That's what it goes down to. I also have a really low boredom quotient. I can get bored in a heartbeat. So I want to you know, be trying something new. And if I have to do just one thing, if I have to be pure, if I have to be doctrinaire somehow, I'm probably going to walk away from it. I need to be able to do anything that I've heard in my lifetime with all of those influences and put them through my horn now. If I can't put it through my horn now, do my take on it. You're going to hear, because this is the stuff that I love. This is the stuff that, that means something to me. If you're listening to me, you're going to hear an influence of somebody I heard last Tuesday. You're going to hear something I heard Monk do. You're going to hear something that I heard Brooke Benton and a lot of those 50 R, 50s R&B uh, baritones do. 
and it's all going to get squashed together. It all runs together, and that makes who I am. That's what makes my voice a little bit unique, aside from the pipes. Yeah. I have all those sensibilities. Sure. So, growing up in New Jersey, you obviously knew about all the big jazz clubs. When you finally got the chance to play at a place like Birdland or Smoke or any of these other places, how much of a thrill was that for you? Oh, the, to stand on the stage of Birdland and look out and, and you know, see a sea of people there. Oh, yeah, that, that'll blow the back of your head off. You know, it's like, wow. You know, this is, this is me, you know. I'm not in Aquatic, New Jersey anymore. I'm, and this is me, and I'm like a Birdland. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, then you hear the, the, the intro to the next tune, and you go, oh, I have to go back to work there. I have to concentrate. But, uh, yeah, it's a thrill. It's a big thrill, you know. Over the years, you played with a lot of people, mm-hmm. veteran musicians, young musicians, all, all of those in between. What do you learn from all the musicians that you play with? What are, what are some of the big takeaways of what you get from other musicians that are veterans, that are legends, that have been around for a while? Their humanity. If, if you're playing with people, I mean, you've probably found this in, in, uh, uh, in, in your life, in your career, Guys who, who you've worked with coming up, um, you learned as much about life from these guys that you worked with as you did, you know, how to do the job. Um, they've had a real influence on you. And, yeah, there'll be a lick I, I maybe have picked up from this guy or that guy. But it's, it's who they are as people, what their approach is. Um, to, to other people and the music. Sometimes it's, it's a respect for the music thing. Sometimes it's, it's a, uh, a push boundaries type of thing. Sometimes it's just don't be an idiot on the bandstand type of thing. Um, and, and everybody's got something to teach you. And, and it's, you, you get their humanity because what we're doing as artists is speaking to an audience about our shared humanity. And um, those things that make us the most vulnerable, that make us the most pained, that give us the hardest time, those are the things that, are, you know, that give us the most joy. All that range of emotions, that's what makes us human. That's where we live. So how did you develop this baritone? Was this something that you were given at birth? Is it something you've worked really hard on? How did the baritone come about? It was something I was aware of. I've always been, well, when I was younger, I had this huge range. Um, I, when we were in high school, we, we were all Motown freaks, and I would do, I would do both the, the Melvin Franklin and the Eddie Kendrick parts. I'd do the high parts and the low parts. I'd let the other guys kind of, you know, flop around in the middle there. As I got older, I started losing my top end, and I had basically a, a higher baritone. But as I started aging, my voice naturally started coming down, and I was changing my keys and stuff accordingly. But then once, once I really got focused on the jazz, I was listening to other people's mostly baritones, and that's when the price stock started rising among equals. And, and I, I realized that, that directness and that humanity that came from that, that lower end, uh, that resonance that came up, that's what I started, started gravitating towards. And I don't know if I pushed it down there as much as I was just aware of it and it became more comfortable. 
Uh, and it just naturally evolved. Let me ask you about your career. Uh-huh. How do you feel about it? Up to this point right now, with all of the <laughs> roads you've been down, all the geographical areas, going out west, coming back east, all the stages you've been on, are you happy where you're at? Mm-hmm. This is, it's, it's, it's a journey. It's a journey. It's a path. Um, you know, if you start out in New Jersey and you're heading to California, it's exciting to hit Pennsylvania. You know, but then you're thrilled when you when you get to Nebraska, and and what a trip it is to get to Nevada. You know, each step, each step on, along the pathway, is um, it, it's a teacher and it's it, it's a uh, it's a lesson, and it's also uh, a culmination of everything up to that point. But knowing that you've got more to go, yeah. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm I'm thrilled for everything that that's happened to me along the way, and I'm uh, I'm really excited for you know what's happening now, and and I can't wait to get to next week. Next week. You know? Why do you love jazz? It's human. It's a human music, and, and uh, that's part of the statement of uh, Bluer Than Velvet. Is um, we may have gotten a little too compositional, to my taste. A lot of the music that's happening now, it's all really good stuff, but can get a little brittle, a little sterile. And jazz is, is somebody playing their their feeling about something, playing what you feel. Yeah. And if somebody's playing, you know, uh, something that's too compositional, it's too intellectual. It has to be smart, but it, it can't be too hidebound and, and and theory or something. If it gets messy. Yeah, that's jazz. When you hear people, it's, okay, go back to Monk for a second. When you hear people play Monk, everybody's playing Monk now because of the, the centennial and all of that. They're playing what Monk, Monk did, but Monk didn't do that. Monk was playing Duke Ellington tunes. They were just being put through his work. That was just the way that he heard Ellington and what he was doing with it, you know? um, which is what everybody should be doing. Uh, but somebody plays the way that Monk played Ellington, well, then you have, it gets to be kind of a Xerox. But when jazz is working right, you have everybody with their own voice. You have Ellington sounds like nobody but Ellington. Basie sounded nobody like, uh, sounded like any, uh, no one but Basie. Uh, Monk on and on, all, all the way up to Tony Bennett and hopefully me. Uh, none of us sound anything like everybody else but we can all dig each other and we've all stolen from each other and we've all absorbed from all those sounds. And that's what makes the music live and thrive and uh, grow and uh, because each person is going to have their own stamp on it if it's working right. You've played with a lot of people in your career. You've been on a lot of stages. So I want to know this. What jazz shows, you've mentioned Monk, have there been any other, any other jazz shows you can remember that really were ranked high on your list of influential live performances you've witnessed firsthand? Well, I, I, I've, I've been a, a lucky, happy camper in my life. I got to see, uh, I got to say, that the show that I saw Monk on, yes, it started off with George Ween's Newport Jazz All-Stars, which was like Peanut Taco and, and all these guys, these incredible players who didn't have a gig that day. They were all like playing, uh, sitting in with that. That was an hour. They went off. Jimmy Smith came out with his trio. He did an hour. Intermission, Monk came out with, with 
uh, Charlie Roush and, and those guys, and they did an hour, then they went off. Then the, the, the headliners at that point, because they were huge, um, the original Dave Rubeck Quartet, uh, and, and they played like an hour and a half and ripped the place apart. Uh, that's all in one bill. That's the way New York used to be. Because I am my high school senior prom, I went to see Duke Ellington, and, and we're, 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 uh, we're, like two other couples came with, uh, with us. So there's like six or eight of us, I don't know, whatever it is. The only table we had was ringside. So I'm sitting ringside to the Ellington band. And there's Ellington sitting there at the piano, and Johnny Hodges was back with him. And, and actually, about halfway through, all of a sudden, I was so unconscious, my hand kind of went up, and I, and I found myself calling for a tune. In which case, you go, well, boys, we've had a request. And they're all laughing. They're rifled through their charts. It's cool. Uh, but Oscar Brown Jr., Sammy Davis Jr., you know, contemporary guys, Andy Bay. I mean, there's so many great players, so many uh, great uh, uh, singers uh, around. Uh, yeah, and, and you sit there and you absorb from all of them and learn from all of them. Alberta Hunter. I saw Alberta Hunter when she was like 86. And and I was madly in love. I was like 27 or something at the time. I was madly in love with this woman when I walked out the door. You know, it's just so many great people here. Plus, just all the casual things. You walk in and you catch this guy, you catch that guy. It, it, it all is, is amazing, and that's one of the joys of growing up in this area. Yeah. Everyone has a perception of who you are. Your family, your friends, your fans. But you're running your ship. Tell me this. Who do you think you are? Oh, interesting. The uh, the closing tune on the first album, Bottle uh, City Sleeps, is uh, You Don't Know Me. The old Cindy Walker, Eddie Arnold tune. I'm something, well, why you stop being here? Um, <laughs> good question. You don't charge by the hour, dude. Uh, <laughs> I should, I guess. <laughs> good supplemental income. Um, <laughs> That's right. I'm a guy. You know, I'm a guy, and I realize. We all, this is a hard life, and we all have our roles to play. And there are some of us who get named artists, and our job is to help the others get through because we can do some things. And, and the things that we can do is touch base with some of the emotions. You know, it's something I've thought about for a long time. You know, we all have our emotions, but not all of us can access them. For some reason, artists have the ability to do that uh, a little bit better than some other folks do. And our job is to be there and to touch base with different parts of our emotional structure that other people can't quite get to. And if we do that, then they can vicariously, uh, through us, be able to, to sort out their own emotions. You know? Something we play or some, something we write will touch people touch someone so that they have uh, something makes sense to them that didn't make sense 20 minutes ago. And I know that, okay, uh, I've, I've had my ups and my, my ups and my, uh, my downs. And to be able to process some of that information, to be able to, to pass that on. Um, oops, hang on. I, got, I live actually on Broadway. So, uh, oh, okay. Forgive, for, sure. forgive the traffic noise going by. Uh, oh, it's all good. Well, anyway, the uh, so we're we're able we're able to do that. That's that's part of what I found that I that a big part of who I am. But that's yeah, that's a large part of who I am is it's being able to be a conduit between uh, people and their emotions. 
I dig it. I like that answer. That's a great way. And I, I saved the toughest ones for the last question. So, DJ, thank you very much for opening up about the new album. And thank you for opening up about your life and music. It's been a great one, man. Oh, thank you, Joe. Joe, I really appreciate it. And uh, you've got a great show there. And thank you for including me in it. I'm, I'm honored. And, uh, you know, hopefully we uh, get to catch up with each other soon. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to EJ for his cool, his music, and his time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. You'd better change your Neon Jazz.